Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with Nancy Adler, professor of psychology at the University of California, a member of the Institute of Medicine, and director of the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Socioeconomic Status and Health. Nancy Adler, welcome to the new school. Thank you. Nancy, you're a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Francisco, and director of the Center for Health and Community there. Is that correct? That is correct. Right. And you also are the director of a MacArthur Foundation research network on socioeconomic status and health. So you've spent much of your career looking at how our incomes, how socioeconomic status uh, affects our health. And um, I want to start by asking you this. Many people think of our health as largely determined by our genes, uh, and perhaps they think a little bit about lifestyle, but people think less about the impact of socioeconomic status on our health. And yet it turns out that has a very powerful effect. Can you describe what people should know about the impact of socioeconomic status on our health? Sure, I'd be happy to. Actually, in fact, if you were going to try and predict whether somebody would stay well or fall ill and you could only ask them one question, you would want to ask them what their socioeconomic status is. It's, it's the single, single most powerful predictor. And it is in part because it's, it has such a diffuse effect. It affects all aspects of our life, you know, where we live, where we work. Uh, so it affects things like our lifestyle, which do have an influence on health. Uh, and so I, I think one of the things to realize is that it's, it is such a powerful force. And the other is to realize that it's, it's a force on everyone's life. There's a tendency to think about this as a threshold effect or just, you know, those in extreme poverty, you can understand how the multiple adversities of poverty could influence health. But somehow, if you get to the point where you have adequate food, clothing, and shelter, it shouldn't matter much. might make your life more comfortable, but it won't make it healthier. And that's just not the case. In, in every society where it's been studied, it forms more of a gradient where the higher you are on socioeconomic status, the better your health. And so in one of your publications, I was really surprised to read that premature death is more than twice as likely for middle-income Americans as for those at the top of the ladder, and then three times as likely for those at the bottom of the ladder. I would have expected that uh, premature death was more likely at the bottom of the ladder, but I, I don't think many people really appreciate that middle-income Americans are twice as likely to die prematurely than those at the top of the ladder. No, that's exactly right. I think people don't sense, have the sense that it's, uh, it has its effects really, all, all the way up to the top. And the United States, although we're one of the richest countries in the world, it seems like we have one of the shortest life expectancies of any industrial nation. It's actually one of the great ironies is we, we spend far more, not only that we're one of the wealthiest nations, but we also spend far more on health care than any other nation. Uh, and yet, even among, among the industrialized nations, we're something like 22nd out of 26 on life expectancy. We have, we're terrible on in, infant mortality. Uh, we, we do not look 
we do not look good on those on those health indicators. So why is that, Nancy? What accounts for the fact that although we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world, we rank twenty first in life ex- or twenty second in life expectancy? Well, you know, there are there are multiple reasons for it, and, and, and you know, in some ways, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, one is that we don't invest as much in prevention. Uh, if you look at the countries that do relatively well. They're focused somewhat more on prevention. There's more focus on primary care, where we've spent most of our health care dollars uh, near, you know, near the end of life and with very high-tech care. And we're also a very unequal society. I mean, one, one of the shocking things in England was uh, actually a report called the Black Report, which was, looked at whether the establishment of the National Health Service decreased the gap in deaths uh, for, for those of different social classes. And what they found was in the period from before when the National Health Service was established till uh, when this report was done, the gap had actually increased. And they, in fact, tried to suppress the report in England. And it's not that the National Health Service was killing off poorer people, but that it couldn't offset the societal effects of inequality that were happening at that time. And if you look in the U.S., you know, we, we have huge income inequalities, and they're, they've been growing. So people are just experiencing upstream the multiple, the multiple effects of our, our disparities. You say they tried to suppress the Black Report in England? Yeah, they didn't. They didn't want it to be uh, published in in uh, in England, so it was published outside of England. Of course, guaranteeing that it'd be a bestseller in England, and it got far more attention than it might otherwise have done. I think one of the best things to do to get attention is to, to suppress it. To suppress it. Right. And when was the Black Report published? Oh gosh, that was probably. Uh, I'm trying to remember the date. Um, around 1980. And this was a government report that said, in effect, even though we have health care for all, that can't uh, offset the, uh, uh, the effect of these uh, socioeconomic uh, differences. No, they didn't totally connect the dots. What they really said was um, the gap has grown. They didn't do, they, they didn't, I don't believe in that report, they didn't attribute it to this socioeconomic disparities. I see. But I think just the data themselves were fairly explosive. Now, uh, Paul Krugman has written a new book called The Conscience of a Liberal, which you may have seen. I have wanted to see it. Because one of the arguments he makes in that book, which is a really interesting book, he is, as you know, a columnist for the New York Times and a respected economist, is that if we were to develop a national health care system that covered everybody, uh, it would help us move back toward the more middle-class income distribution that we had uh, around World War II in this country because uh, it is in itself a form of income redistribution. So I guess my question is, number one, would you agree with that? Would it, would it help uh, buffer the impact of the very large income uh, uh, differences we have in this country. And secondly, when you have something like uh, 
uh, a national health care system, isn't it in itself a form of income redistribution? Well, Cindy, we've just, um, our network has just put out uh, a report where we've tried to think about what policies could reduce disparities, and there are really two kinds of policies. One is, are the policies that would reduce the gaps, uh, really reduce the income inequality. So that, that does require income redistribution. The other is things that will buffer the effects of inequality. So the provision of health care would be one of those. Mm-hmm. I can see how the... Housing and education might be others. Right. So the, the fact that you don't have much money you could still have access to good education or you could still have access to adequate housing. Or food stamps for food, that kind of thing. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, It's an interesting argument that somehow the provision of health care will affect the income distribution. Well, I suppose I mean that simply in the the sense that if middle-income families have access to health care that they no longer have to spend out-of-pocket dollars on, right. that It'll they, it, it, it changes their income situation often in a very important way. Right. That's true. And also, uh, there's a no- number, uh, you know, when you look at causes of personal bankruptcy, health problems is a, is a major cause. Right. So, yes, it would help that. But my sense is we have such profound income inequality in this country that that amount of change, yes, it will help, but it's, I think there's still going to be there's still going to be remaining a fair amount of inequality. Now, one of the interesting questions to me is whether, uh, granted that that as you said, the most the single thing that you could know about somebody that would most uh, help you know how their health was going to be over their lifetime is is their socioeconomic status, and yet one has the sense when you meet people when you just move through the world that there are some kinds of people, there are some communities of people that somehow find ways to buffer themselves from having, uh, you know, from not being at the top of the economic uh, uh, pile. What do we know about, for example, the impact of uh, strong faith groups, of strong systems of social support, of uh, being in an immigrant and still part of an immigrant culture, or of cultures within the United States that seem to create resilience. Is there research on that that enables us to say what kinds of uh, forms of uh, social engagement and participation buffer uh, these powerful impacts of socioeconomic status on health? Yeah, actually, I think they're both good examples of the good and examples of the bad. I mean, clearly, one of the most uh, replicable epidemiological findings is that immigrants have better health than those who are native-born. So despite having usually more poverty, uh, the those who have come from other countries, from every ethnicity, actually do better than the first generation who do better than the second generation. And why is that? Well, you know, it, it, it's attributed in part to the things I think that, that you were mentioning, the idea that Often when people immigrate, they immigrate to ethnic enclaves that are very tight, tightly knit. They bring with them traditional family structures, which are often much more supportive. They bring traditional diets, which are probably better than our fast food diet. 
Um, and they're somewhat buffered from what you could see as some of the toxic effects of mainstream American culture and habits. Um, by the time you get to the second generation, they may have lost that. Now, there's some alternate explanations as well that are somewhat artifactual. You know, one is that people who immigrate tend to be healthier to start with because to undertake the rigors of immigration, you have to be kind of hardy. Right. Um, so you need to, to, to parcel that, uh, parse that out a bit. And there's also some concern that first that immigrants may go back to their country of origin when they become very ill um, because they want to die in the home country. So it may take them out of the denominator. But I think even if you take out those artifactual um, effects, there is still a real effect uh, of, of immigration. The, what I was thinking about is on the downs, the, the other thing that people have been very interested in are things like social capital. You know, do neighborhoods that have more social capital, more social integration, or communities have better health profiles? And there is some evidence that they do. That what is social capital, Nancy? Uh, social capital is kind of the, the connections between people. There's a degree of civic engagement and trust. Uh, the the term was popularized really by Bob Putnam at Harvard, who was really he was most interested in how small towns and cities govern themselves and was looking at places where there's a, a good deal of interpersonal trust. So basically, the, in the, his terms, the transaction costs are low because you can trust people. Uh, you, you, and it, it, there, uh, Achiro Kawachi at uh, Harvard School of Public Health then began to link that to health effects because with social capital, you also have people investing more in civic goods like Libra- libraries and parks and schools. Uh, uh, so Put- Putnam wrote Bowling Alone, didn't he? He did. And so his basic argument is that social capital or social trust is eroding in the United States. Absolutely. Is that a fact that it's eroding? Oh, well, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh he makes a persuasive argument that it is. Um, there are certainly critics who are not convinced. Uh, what do you think? I think it is. I mean, I, th- I think the flip side of our individualism and mobility is that we have many fewer people who are living in the same neighborhoods and communities they grew up in, which is one of the things that helps uh, really stitch together social capital. Uh, even at the level of, of corporations. I mean, it used to be the corporations had their headquarters in a town. They cared about that town, invested in it. And now with multinational corporations, there aren't as many place-based employment uh, loyalties. So I think there, there are lots of reasons to believe that it is eroding. And that leads me to a question about faith groups and support groups. There's interesting man named Harold Koenig, I don't know if you know his work, uh, who wrote a book called The Healing Power of Faith. Uh, he's at uh, Duke University. And he assembles the, uh, the data suggesting that if you are deeply engaged in a faith community, uh, not only go to church but believe in it and participate actively and are part of a faith community, 
that this can have a very powerful beneficial effect on your health. And similarly, there's a, a sociologist named Robert Ruth, Ruthnow who wrote a book called Sharing the Journey, Social Supports Groups and Support Groups in America's New Quest for Community. And I'm wondering whether we could see the, the social support group movement and the, the renewed power of faith communities as efforts by people to combat uh, the corrosive, alienating effects of these increasing uh, income disparities on uh, social capital and to recreate uh, social capital in some powerful form in the difficult conditions under which people are living. Oh, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think people, you know, the people are seeking a sense of community and belonging and engagement. And it, it no longer happens as naturally. So I think people are more consciously seeking this out in different communities. You know, when I was mentioning before about the negative examples, often you see where there are problems when there's a some kind of stress and, or a natural stress. And there's a very interesting book called Heat Wave, which analyzes four days in Chicago that had a heat wave where it was over 100 degrees and over 700 people died. And they, he did what was called a social autopsy and found out really the people who died were mostly older people who were socially isolated, who were living in uh, single-occupancy rooms where they were afraid to go out uh, because of fear of crime, who basically sat in their rooms and died from heat stroke. Mm. And so, you know, the social isolation the you know, the, and the kinds of problems in cities that, re- well, beyond cities that keep people from making connections, I think, are very serious. Huh. Wow. So let's take a look for a moment at the history of socioeconomic differences in the United States. Have have they remained more or less the same over American history, or have they changed uh, uh, dramatically in historical perspective? Well, certainly the distributions have changed. I mean, if you look at how income has been distributed, there was the New Deal created tremendous you know change in our tra- trajectories. Uh, the anti-poverty programs. I mean, you can see historically that we've had upswings and downswings. We're we're certainly in a period of growing inequality, even if you look at the percent of income going to the top one-tenth of one percent of the population. That is the fastest-growing sector of increase. And people at the bottom have pretty much had stagnant incomes. Isn't that true of the middle class as well? Well, the middle class... Yeah, it's not quite as stagnant as the bottom, but it certainly has grown nothing uh, like the rate at the top. Uh-huh. And um, I've been reading an interesting book uh, by Michael McGurr called A Fierce Discontent, The Rise and Fall of the Progressive Movement in America. And his argument, which I've seen before, is that uh, the 19th century was a period, uh, or much of it, like our own, a kind of a a gilded age, and then you had this progressive movement uh, which uh, created the middle class in the United States uh, and uh, really transformed us from a nation living on farms, working from sunrise to sundown, and three decades later, uh, you know, we were a diverse, urban, affluent uh, 
middle-class country. And so it seems as though there was a kind of a rise of uh, the progressive movement and a rise of the middle class, and then again uh, kind of a return to a 19th century Gilded Age economy. Does that capture from your much more precise perspective the broad sweep of American uh, history in terms of income dis- distribution? Absolutely. I think in broad terms, that's exactly right. So one could say that if you really care about American health, there's nothing that would be more important than uh, a rebirth of the progressive movement in terms of uh, both buffering us against these income disparities and reducing the disparities. I, I, I think that that's true. Uh-huh. So... What is the international perspective on this? Uh, For example, take a country like Costa Rica, which has a far lower income than ours. How does a country like Costa Rica do in terms of health outcomes and uh, socioeconomic disparities? Well, if you look internationally, that's, that's that's a situation where there really is a threshold effect that if at the very low incomes... Uh, the countries suffer terribly, and they have you know short life expectancies and you know not not healthy lives. When you get above that, it's not as clear. And a country like Costa Rica is so fascinating because it has a fairly low income, but it actually has a life expectancy pretty close to ours. Uh, but if you then begin to look at what is it about Costa Rica? They have invested a tremendous amount in education. They have something like a 90% literacy rate. Uh, they have very good primary care. Uh, you know, so they've, they've, they've done a lot that will help buffer the, the absolute levels of uh, you know, income. And I've heard that there are parts of India, for example. I know, obviously, in, India has very great numbers of poor people as well as a a rising affluent uh, middle class and upper class. But Kerala State, for example, seems to be another place where there's been an investment in education. Do you know the situation? You know, I don't know the data there as Mm -hmm. well. I'm a little bit more familiar with Costa Rica, but Mm -hmm. I've I've heard that referred to in the same Mm -hmm. way. Are there other countries other than Costa Rica that stand out for you as examples of countries with not huge poverty, but income much lower than ours, and yet uh, really good health outcome. Well, Cuba. Uh-huh. I mean, Cuba is the country that, A, is poor, B, has suffered from the, uh, you know, the, the U.S. limitations on what can go there. They're, you know, they have shortages of medicine, and they have a life expectancy, again, that's um, comparable, and at one point was higher than ours. Uh-huh. Interesting. Um, and there they've they have, uh, again, they have a very good primary care system and invest a lot in early childhood development. I mean, that's the other thing is uh, the importance in, in of focusing on early development because the seeds of health are planted there. So adult health is not just what we do as adults, but our experiences growing up as children. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about... Uh, uh, premature death as a marker, and we've talked broadly about health status throughout life. But what are some of the, the marker conditions throughout the life uh, uh, cycle that uh, lower-income people experience more negative outcomes in? What are, what are some of the examples that you can trace throughout the life cycle that show 
these differences in, in health status. Well, one of the things that is so convincing about how powerful socioeconomic status is is that almost any condition you pick, you can almost throw a dart and pick a condition, and whatever that condition and at whatever age, it'll be more common in lower SES individuals. There are only two exceptions that I know of that are the reverse, and that's um, malignant melanoma and breast cancer. And both of those are probably tied somewhat to behavior because malignant melanoma, uh, if you have the income to go to the beach and get yourself sunburned often enough, uh, that may help contribute to it. And for breast cancer, delayed childbearing uh, is a risk factor. Now, for both of those, though, once diagnosed, survival is better by SES. If you, con- uh, so if you control for later child-rearing, uh, does that wipe out the difference in breast cancer? Not incidence? totally. Not totally. And that's, mm-hmm. that's why um, there's still some interest in trying to figure out what else mm-hmm. there is. It, it's, it is somewhat puzzling. Mm-hmm. And just about every other condition, um, and we might want to come back to this because uh, what's interesting is there are some groups for whom there are reverse gradients, particularly in the developing world. There are some places where uh, actually the more affluent have, for example, more cardiovascular disease. Right. But in the U.S., again, uh, you know, starting from birth, you know, uh, kids who are born to mothers who have less education, less income, are much more likely to have low birth weight. Uh, to die within the first year, to experience asthma, you know, all the sort of the childhood maladies. And more birth defects. Okay, so birth defects I didn't know. Interesting. Well, I'll tell you where I found it. I found it in your MacArthur report. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, that under newborn health problems, it says there's more premature birth, more low birth weight, and more birth defects. All right, so I need to check with my colleague who wrote that section. Now, that's particularly interesting to me because a birth defect is unlikely to be a consequence of stress, right? In other words, one can imagine that premature birth or low birth weight uh, are to some significant degree sort of, you know, uh, stress outcomes. But birth defects, it sounds like uh, chemical contaminants may play some role. Very interesting. That's probably right. And in fact, in your report for MacArthur, uh, one of my concerns was that it seemed to me that um, not enough uh, attention was paid to the potential contribution of uh, environmental contaminants. So you do, you do, and it's important, uh, talk about toxins and pollutants, including lead, dirty air, and noise, and how they affect health directly and indirectly in terms of poor cognitive development resulting in school performance problems. But um, there's less emphasis on the new science on what we really know now about endocrine-disrupting chemicals in health. And that shows up for me in a, in a really interesting way uh, when you talk about uh, the increased incidence of birth defects. Yeah. So just pointing to that. No, that's it? very... In- I mean, it's, it's partly a function of the particular group we had assembled for the MacArthur network, because we started out with the question, how does socioeconomic status get into the body? Right. And what what has been ignored? And uh, we focused on the stress pathway as an underappreciated pathway. 
which is not to say there aren't other underappreciated pathways. So let's talk more about stress. Uh, there was a great researcher named Hans Selye who was front of one of the first really major stress researchers. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. And what was Selye's thesis about the effect of stress on health? Well, you know, the idea was that with stress you have the fight-or-flight response, and those can set off a cascade of physiological effects that, uh, that ultimately uh, can affect your health. So, as I understand... Stress didn't just affect one system, but it had, a, as you said, a whole cascade of effects that contributed to a very wide range of chronic and degenerative conditions in the organism. Right, and that's actually one of the things that our group has been focusing on. We have a, a wonderful neuroscientist, uh, Bruce McEwen, who is part of our group, who's developed this concept of allostatic load, which is the wear and tear on the body of repeated exposure to stress. And the idea is even small dysregulation across systems can make you vulnerable to a wide range of diseases, and then which particular disease you get may be a function of your, you know, genetics, particular exposures, but it would help account for this very diffuse pattern of socioeconomic status and health risk. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm talking to Nancy Adler, who is professor of psychology at the University of California, San Francisco, vice chair of the Department of Psychiatry, director of the Center for Health and Community, and one of the country's uh, leading authorities on socioeconomic status and health. So going back to this, uh, this point about the impact of stress on health, how has the field of research on stress and health matured since Cellier. How much more do we understand about how stress affects health? Well, I think it has matured in several ways. I mean, one is trying to understand more about the nature of stress itself, you know, what constitutes stress. The other is really understanding the biological pathways a little bit more uh, completely. So let's, let's take the first of those, the nature of stress. Uh, Cellier distinguished between what he called eustress, positive stress, and negative stress. Is that a distinction that's held up? Well, it's held up uh, to some extent. It's, uh, you know, I, I think after Cellier, conceptually, one of the strong contributions were made by colleagues nearby here, uh, Richard Lazarus and Susan Folkman, who focused on the importance of cognitive appraisal that the same event, you know, if there's a challenge, but you think you have the resources to deal with it, it can actually have a very positive psychological effect and actually physiological effect. But if you have a challenge, you think you can't deal with it, that really sets off this negative cascade. Uh, and there are some researchers, uh, Jim Blaskovich at uh, Santa Barbara, Wendy Mendes at Harvard, who've really been showing these pathways of the difference between a challenge response and a stress response that, again, can be keyed by the same event but could be uh, responded to quite differently by 
by different individuals. So I think Cellier's idea has held up and is actually uh, now being elaborated by these researchers. So does that, uh, it seems like an extraordinarily important point, that when you have a challenge, that if you feel that you can respond creatively to it, it can be positive. But if you feel that there's no way to respond it creatively, it can be very negative. Right. right. So does that connect with the research literature, uh, what, which I've heard of referred to as the uh, inner locus of control literature that suggests that some people faced with a challenge believe that they have the inner resources to a respond from within themselves, but that that's really actually a relatively small percent of the whole population. I don't know what the distribution is, but it is clear that the sense of control is so powerful. Um, it has been looked at in different ways. So, for example, the, the Whitehall study of British civil servants, which was the first study that showed this gradient effect, um, was done in England, uh, looked at 10-year mortality of British civil servants. And it turned out at each step up in the civil service, you had more atherosclerosis, more every disease, and a higher mortality, even between the next to top level, who were doctors, lawyers, professionals, and the very top level. So that was the first data on gradients that was so striking. Who wrote the book on that? I've been trying to remember his name. Michael Marmot. Right. M-A-R-M-O-T. Mm-hmm. And, and what's, what's that book called? Um, the Status Syndrome. Right. Go ahead. And please. there are probably now something like, you know, a thousand mm-hmm. professional papers out from the Whitehall studies. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, I, that was particularly interesting is they've then tried to say, okay, so what is it about higher, what they call employment grade in, in the civil service? And one of the things that almost... Uh, totally accounts for the effect is sense of control at work. So when the civil servants were asked, do you have control over how you can do your work, uh, it turns out at each step up in the civil service, more they felt more control. And when you can adjusted for that statistically, uh, the effect of employment grade almost fell away. How interesting. So staying with this line for a moment before we go to the second dimension of stress, but the cognitive appraisal piece of it. Our mutual colleague, Dan Goleman, has done important work on emotional intelligence, which he describes as the way we handle our feelings internally, and social intelligence, which he describes as the way we relate to other people. It sounds as if both social and emotional intelligence would be deeply interconnected with what your colleagues describe as cognitive appraisal of the nature of stress. Oh, absolutely. I mean, social intelligence is important for your interactions with the world that can actually avert situations that would be stressful, and emotional intelligence is important for dealing with them, because well, they, do, they do happen. I mean, I, it is interesting to me, whenever I'm you know, sort of the elevator conversation or the uh, dinner party conversation where I'll say I'm studying socioeconomic status and health and I say I'm looking at stress, everybody thinks that whatever level they are at on the social hierarchy is where the stresses are the greatest. And there is the sense that somehow, you know, the stressed executive, uh, you know, is under a great deal of stress. What they don't realize is how much control they have and how many resources they have. Uh, and 
it doesn't fit our our definition of stress. Right. Isn't that interesting? Because I think what almost every listener to this program could relate to personally is that most people feel unbelievably stressed and maxed out by uh, by their work. Uh, I don't want to say most people everywhere, but certainly most people who work in the world of telephone calls and emails and and you know uh, sort of the, the that kind of work. But there's just a tremendous sense of being overwhelmed and stressed beyond belief. Is have people studied that experience? Did our parents, uh, for example, feel that same level of being in just overwhelmingly rushed and pressed that we feel? Or is that a consequence of changes in our uh, social and uh, technological environment? Well, I'm not sure. You know, unfortunately, we didn't think to ask those questions. In, in prior generations, so I'm not sure we would we have the data on that. But I would actually differentiate feeling rushed and uh, put upon from feeling stressed, because to some extent we choose to do some of this. I mean, uh, so that those of us who are getting lots of emails a day, lots of calls, we also have some flexibility in how we deal with them. You know, if we get a call that our child is sick, we can leave we can work and say, okay, I, you know, right. the heck with the emails. The janitor may not be able to leave work. Right, exactly. They're, you know, they're in a very rigid work environment. Right. So, I, you know, and sometimes there's a rush of, you know, oh, I have all this to do, and I'm doing it well. And, mm-hmm. you know, so that's where the challenge comes in. So just the fact that we're, we're rushed may or may not be stressful. Okay, so now going back because we took a nice long detour here from your point of view that, uh, that, that the Selye's original insights about stress, one of the two areas has been a new understanding of cognitive appraisal and stress. Uh, and then you said there was a second aspect of our, our deeper understanding of stress. And the second is really understanding the biology. Um, Selye's work sparked off a huge explosion of research, but almost all of it was lab-based and looking at acute stressors, you know, looking at what happens when you, you know, expose somebody to a stress, um, you know, what, what kind of physiological responses are there, what's their reactivity. I think one of the advances is also now moving into the more the real world and saying, well, acute stress matters, but what about the kind of chronic day-in, day-out stress? And uh, that's where I think the allostatic load concept has been extremely helpful in thinking about the idea that it's not just one event, but these repeated exposures and what kinds of implications those have for our biology. Now, when you speak of stress in in the sense of allostatic load, are you talking about, as you appear to be, cognitively appraised stress, or does that include the impact of chemical contaminants, the impact of a lousy diet, the impact of being physically immobile and things like that. In other words, is stress in the, in the way you're describing it essentially a, a psychological perception phenomenon or is it the many other factors that you uh, and your colleagues refer to as contributing to 
the increased morbidity and mortality uh, down the whole socioeconomic chain. Uh, so we, I don't know that stress has to be cognitively mediated at certainly at a conscious level. I and mean, I think people can experience stress without necessarily saying to themselves, oh, I can't do this. I and mean, I think some, some, sometimes this happens instantaneously. We've been most interested in just making the connection of is allostatic load greater for those with less education, less income, and then trying to unpack what is it about about those experiences that is leading to greater allostatic load. So we have been looking more at psychological stress, um, but I think it's a very reasonable hypothesis that all those things you mentioned would contribute and, and would help explain the link. Is the concept of allostatic load, therefore, essentially a psychological construct? No, it's really a biological construct. That would include, the, although you look at the psychological dimension, it would include every insult that contributes to, uh, to a load. Right. The concept is that, again, dysregulation across physiological systems right. is indicative of vulnerability. And so, I mean, the index is really just the number of indicators on which people are abnormally high. I see. So it's a physiological outcome measures. It that, is. I see. So now let's, let's just take this... Uh, a little further, there's obviously a huge new science on genomics, on the difference between uh, the genes we inherited, we inherit, and gene expression. Right. And obviously, the, the way genes express is what actually controls what happens to us psychobiologically in our lives. Has the stress literature merged with the science of genomics to look at the impact of stress on gene expression? There are some initial studies that are starting to do this, and there's some people who've been looking at the gene-environment interaction, and so showing, for example, um, there's a, a longitudinal study in Dundee, uh, Australia or New Zealand, uh, by Moffat and Caspi, that showed people who have a vulnerability, a genetic vulnerability to uh, depression. There's a short allele of one of the one of the genes, only is linked to later depression if there's also early life stress. I see. So there's, there, is, there are studies, so there are human studies. There are also some fascinating animal studies, uh, Michael Meany's work in, at McGill, that shows that um, mother rats who uh, lick and groom their offspring, those offspring... Uh, are much more uh, hardy in terms of responsiveness to stress, are less vulnerable to adverse effects of stress later in life. And so one of the questions is, what's the human equivalent of licking and grooming? Right. So moving on to some other aspects of, of what affects our health in relationship to socioeconomic status uh, and health. Uh, in your MacArthur publication, which incidentally I really recommend, it's called Reaching for a Healthier Life, Facts on Socioeconomic Status and Health in the U.S., and it's published by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Socioeconomic Status and Health. But one of the, the things that many listeners may be asking themselves about is, 
What about race and socioeconomic status and health? And, and you have a, a really interesting uh, graph in your, conversa- in your discussion about this, about life expectancy at age 25 for U.S. black and white men with similar income levels. What did you find uh, when you looked at uh, U.S. black and white men at age 25 with similar income levels? Right. Well, actually, what we found is that much of what we attribute to race is confounding with socioeconomic status. And given the historical discrimination in our country, African Americans tend to be clustered more in lower socioeconomic uh, categories. And so when, you, when we just look at race differences and find a difference, sometimes people say, oh, that's because of biological differences. And when you actually control for income, they're wildly diminished, and there are actually much larger differences within blacks and within whites by income than there are across races. And that's, that's counterintuitive for many people, isn't it? Many people would say that racism uh, would be the primary fact in the differences between life expectancy for a 25-year-old black and white man. I mean, uh, but what you're saying, is, if I understand you correctly, is that if you, if you control for a socioeconomic status and look at it carefully, that uh, actually black and white men at age 25 with the same income levels are not all that dissimilar. They're still somewhat dissimilar, and I would say racism, racism plays a role <clears throat> because it's <clears throat> sorry, um, relegating blacks to lower incomes. Absolutely. But once you control for that, um, there is a much diminished effect. The fact that there is still some effect probably has to do with residual effects of the stress of experiencing discrimination and other factors, but it's just much smaller. And actually, as you go up in income, the difference between blacks and whites diminishes. And I think you make a very important point that the place where racism shows up is in pushing African Americans into lower income categories, and therefore it's, it's built in, and therefore we can't trust how comparable the two groups look just when you look at income levels. In other exactly. words, okay, that's, that's yeah. really helpful. Um, and also, I have to put it, for people who are interested in the MacArthur publication, uh, they can get a PDF on our website. Which is what? It's www.macses.ucsf.edu. Thank you very much. Um, so you, you talk, obviously, not only just about uh, a race, but there are a whole series of conversations in your publication about other factors. Healthcare matters, personal behaviors matter. Let's take personal behaviors, because you've done a lot of research on, uh, what, on, on personal behavior risk factors as they are affected by socioeconomic status. Uh, what, what is the essence of what you've found about uh, the kinds of choices we make in terms of our health depending on our socioeconomic status? Well, if you look at risk behaviors, they're the same as diseases, which is it doesn't matter which one you look at. The risk behaviors are greater in lower SES 
populations. So what are, what are examples of risk behaviors? Smoking, sedentary lifestyle, uh, like, you know, not getting enough exercise, eating high-fat foods, not using seat belts. Um, not using contraception? Not using contraception. But I think one of the problems is that these are framed as terms of personal choice. You know, when you're saying people are choosing. Right. And I would put choice in quotes. Right. Because you choose in, in a social and environmental context. So it's not that people who have less money or less education are somehow have weaker willpower or morally not as strong. They're subjected to a lot more environmental pressures that make it much harder to engage in health-promoting behaviors. And what are the areas within that that you have taken the closest look at personally? been looking more recently at obesity because that's, you know, that's the, the big epidemic right now uh, and the rates are increasing at such a frightening rate. Uh, and if, if you look at things like um, neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods have fewer supermarkets. Um, the cost of fresh fruits and vegetables are actually higher, both absolutely and certainly relative to income, than they are in more affluent neighborhoods. There are fewer places for recreation. Uh, people have more fear of crime, so they don't even want to go out and walk. Just almost every resource that you would need to eat healthfully and to exercise make are much harder to obtain in poor neighborhoods. And, and you really focus in your MacArthur report in a really interesting and creative way on how much neighborhoods matter. Uh, and you divide this between biological and chemical threats like uh, pollution, noise, waste, lead paint and stuff, the built environment, and the social environment. So in all of those areas, each of those has health effects. Exactly. So, for example, the pollution leads to respiratory diseases and, and uh, impaired cognition, and the built environment affects asthma and obesity and the social environment affects anxiety and hypervigilance and depression and so on. And actually, one of the reasons we didn't look at direct environmental exposures as much as the environmental justice movement has really captured that in a powerful way. Mm -hmm. And I think people understand that there has not been random distribution of right. uh, toxic dump sites and other things that create exposures. I think when it comes to behaviors, people think of those as individual. Mm -hmm. And so I've been trying to develop this concept of behavioral justice, that people need to have access to the resources to engage in health-promoting behaviors. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So where does the community of people that share your profound concern with the impact of socioeconomic status on health where does it reside in the American uh, civil society? I mean, I'm sure there's, an, there's an, a, a huge academic piece to this, but is there a place that you could locate the, the public dialogue about uh, income disparities and health? Oh, what a wonderful question, and I wish I knew the answer. I mean, that's actually the community we're trying to reach with our booklet, and I'm having a harder time trying to figure out where that is. It's clearly strong within the academic community and the public health community. So the American Public Health Association, for example, cares about this? Yes. Right. Yes. And I, what are the other professional societies? If you were to rank 
the top three or four professional societies that professionally care about income disparities in health, where would you find them? Well, you know, I don't know all the professionals. It's partly the worlds I live in, so I certainly know MAPHA does. The American Psychological Association now has a task force on socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. uh, which became permanent last year. So I think, you know, what I'm aware is I'm sure the American Sociological Association So these are some of the, the usual suspects. Yeah. But it's really fascinating that you, you haven't found the place in American civil society that really cares about socioeconomic status and health. No, the, you know, the value system in the U.S. is still very much this individualistic Horatio Alger, people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, those who become wealthy deserve it. Um, it's, we're really bucking the trend. Now, I, I will also put in a plug that in the spring there's going to be a, a four-part series uh, that'll, on PBS called Unnatural Causes that's going to focus on social determinants of health. Uh-huh. Who's doing that? Um, it's um, California Newsreel. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a whole rollout of that, of trying to raise public awareness. I think there has been increased public awareness, uh, or at least the pub- there's been in- some increased media attention. For example, the New York Times magazine section uh, last year did this wonderful uh, profile of a woman who had lost her job and then lost her dental insurance, so she lost her teeth, and once she didn't have teeth, she couldn't work. And you showed the sort of cascade that happens within within the U.S. So there's, and, you know, actually every day in the paper, there is some economic news that should create some outrage. Uh, so it feels as if maybe it's my biased perception because I'm interested in this, but it seems as if at least there's more beginnings of discussions. But I don't. Well, you do see it somewhat in the presidential debates. I mean, certainly Edwards. John Edwards John has Edwards really been has addressing been this. Artic- articulating yeah, this. Really, uh, it's an extraordinary fact that that John Edwards has chosen whatever else is merits or demerits, to run on uh, the two societies and um, the importance of uh, restoring a middle-class America. Yep. And I think in that he reflects uh, a much broader cultural ethos, which is uh, that many of us are are grasping for a, a new progressive movement in this country. It's very interesting, of course, that Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, was... Uh, a Republican, and the, the progressive movement in the United States was uh, was very bipartisan in many respects. So this doesn't necessarily have to be about Democrats versus Republicans. It can be a, a shared sense of the value of supporting a middle-class country. Exactly. And I, what, I think one of the things that's making the discussion with health complicated is where the health discussion is so focused on universal coverage, which it has to be. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a necessary component, but it's not going to be sufficient. So I would love to see this, the discussion on income inequality and, and the, what it's doing to our society linked to the health care debate. Nancy, let me close with a personal question to you. You've, you've devoted much of your professional life to looking at uh, income disparities and health. What is the 
inner place that this subject touched you that made you want to devote so much of your career to it? Well, I think there are probably two things that it touched. One, I, I, I literally changed my career at a meeting where I heard about the Whitehall study. And some of it was that it seemed to me you could only understand the Whitehall findings by understanding psychosocial processes. And as a psychologist who's lived on a biomedical campus for my whole career uh, and who really believes in the importance of psychological and social factors, it was extremely um, both intriguing to me and a and an opportunity to understand how psychosocial factors play a role. I think the other is probably just in terms of my own life experience, and this is not unusual for researchers in this area. I uh, I came from a working class family, and have you know uh, sort of resonate to the issues of, of social class and how powerful that is. And you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that this is what I'm studying. So your own life really brought to you this to to you brought you to this that your own experience of what it means to grow up working class. Yes, and understanding the kinds of uh, you know obstacles. Certainly, you know, my life has been a whole lot easier than my parents' life was, and a, and I think a healthier one. Yeah, Nancy Adler, thank you so much for being with us at the New School. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.